All right, we're continuing in Matthew this week, Matthew chapter 12, and uh, last week we talked about the Sabbath and what that means for us as Christians. Is a Sabbath, uh, resting on Saturday or even worshiping God on Saturday, something that we are obligated to do as Christians? That's right. That's right. No, we're not uh, obligated to do that. And we look at several passages, Colossians 2, 11 through 17, Romans 14, 1 through 6. And we looked at the original purpose of the Sabbath, which was for rest, not even for worship. The original people, it was a sign between was God and God and Israel. Israel. There we go. God and Israel. The original people was between. We saw that we could enter into the, a rest now through Jesus Christ. That we have a future rest we can enter into if we persevere to the end. And we also looked at Acts 15, that the council, what they decided about the, the Gentile Christians, what they should keep. And Sabbath was not mentioned in one of those. We saw that uh, Sunday worship was something that was uh, several times in, in the book of Acts and 1 Corinthians. And uh, we looked at the New Covenant and also looked at some of the uh, church fathers' writings on this issue. So with all those things combined, next time you run into a Seventh-day Adventist, you can bring them to the Scriptures and show them what it says and be able to help them understand the truth about this issue. All right, so the week before that, we went through Matthew 12, 1 through 14. And this week, we're going to go through Matthew 12, 15 through 32. So let's go ahead and we're going to read that. But when Jesus knew it, he withdrew from there, and great multitudes followed him. And he healed them all. Yet he warned them not to make him known, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him, and he will declare justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and smoking flax he will not quench. So he sends forth justice to victory, and in his name Gentiles will trust. Then one was brought to him who was demon-possessed, blind and mute, and he healed him. The blind and mute man both spoke and saw. And all the multitudes were amazed and said, Could this be the son of David? Now when the Pharisees heard it, they said, This fellow does not cast out demons, except by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. But Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation. And every city or house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan cast out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they, they shall be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can one enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods? Unless he first binds a strong man, and then he will plunder his house. He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters abroad. Therefore I say to you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven men. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. Okay, so we see in verse 15... <laughs> that when Jesus knew it, what is it talking about he knew? If you go back to the verse before that, what is it that he knew that caused him to withdraw from there? 
that they were seeking out, plotting against him, how they might destroy him. So this is one principle we see here in Jesus' life is fleeing persecution. He wasn't running to it. He fleed it at times. At times he let it come upon him. So we must you know, obey the leading of the Lord when that comes to our life. And when he withdrew from there, great multitudes followed him. And this is a good principle I think we can learn as open-air preachers. Sometimes we're dealing with police or dealing with situations with authorities for festivals and parades. Oftentimes they'll be unlawful towards us and say, no, you can't be here, you have to go over there. And sometimes, I'm not saying it all the time now, sometimes maybe the Lord is using this to move us to a different area where we can minister to people in a different way, a different group of people who we never would have come in contact with otherwise. You see, something good came of Jesus moving. Great multitudes followed him. So he ministered to great multitudes and healed all who needed to be healed. Now what I want to do now is I want to go to Mark chapter 3 and look at this uh, Mark's account. Now remember I told you about Mark's gospel. Mark gives, what? what's different between him and Matthew? Mark is more detailed. Uh, Mark uh, obviously doesn't have as much accounts as Matthew does about what happened with Jesus' life. But when he gives an account, he gives more details, generally speaking. So I want you to put your detective cap on now, and I want you to look for differences here in Mark chapter 3, verses 7 through 12. We're just going to talk about this first part of Jesus' account in Matthew, and uh, see what details you can see that Matthew did not bring out. So Mark 3, verses 7 through 12. <clears throat> but Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea. And a great multitude from Galilee followed him, and from Judea, and Jerusalem, and Idumea, and beyond the Jordan, and those from Tyre and Sidon. A great multitude, when they heard how, how many things he was doing, came to him. So he told his disciples that a small boat should be kept ready for him because of the multitude, lest they should crush him. For he healed many, so that as many as had afflictions pressed about him to touch him. And the unclean spirits, whenever they saw him, fell down before him and cried out, saying, You are the Son of God. But he sternly warned them they should not make him known. Okay, what difference do you see here in Mark, details that he give that Matthew did not give? Anyone? That's right. That said what? Right, right. Very important details there. That Mark is giving the details about where these people are from. Where they're coming from, they're coming from far away. And Tyre and Sidon, those are both Gentile areas. These are not Jewish areas. No. So Gentiles are coming out to him. And not only that, these unclean spirits are the ones who are saying, you are the Son of God, and he told them to be quiet, and they should not make him known. Now, who do you think in verse 12 he's saying that he should not make them known to? Well, he, the, who's, who's saying you are the Son of God here? So he's saying it to them, and who else do you think he's saying it to? Those who may have heard them say this. So he's telling them to be quiet about saying he's the Son of God. And uh, with those things in mind, I want to go back to Matthew. Any other details you saw there? Before we go back to Matthew, uh, details that Matthew didn't give? About the boat, yep. And going, where did they go? They went to the, went to the sea. Yeah, they went towards the sea. Uh, so that's where he went to. So a great multitude from all these places followed him. All right. 
and they pressed about him that they should crush him. They might crush him. Okay, so we're going back to Matthew 12, and uh, starting in verse 16. Verse 15, he healed them all. Uh, obviously, it's not talking about all inclusively everybody because it means all who needed to be healed. If you didn't need to be healed, he didn't heal you. But he was healing all who needed to be healed. And we saw some of the things from Mark 3 that he, that he did heal. And um, we see in verse 16, yet he warned them not to make him known. Now, going back to Mark 3, we got details there. What is he warning them not to make known? That he's a son of God. That's what he's warning them not to make him known. Very important detail in light we're about to read from Isaiah, which, uh, which is quoted here by Matthew. That it might be fulfilled, which is spoken by Isaiah the prophet. That what might be fulfilled? That people aren't going around saying, this is the Son of God, this is the Son of God. That's what might, not, might be fulfilled here. They're not going around saying, the Messiah is here, the Messiah is here. Because he's not trying to draw a lot of attention to himself in that regard. And this is where we get the quote from Isaiah, chapter 42. Verses 1 through 4, this is where verses 18 through 21 are quoting from. Isaiah 42, 1 through 4. It says, Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased. Now I want to put a really uh, kind of a sidebar here, uh, detail. It says, My beloved here. My beloved means someone special to you, someone you greatly love, someone who you're close to. Uh, it says, My soul is well pleased. Now, in, back in Isaiah 42, if you go back there, you'll see that it says, my elect, or my chosen. And this is a very important detail concerning Calvinism, okay? If you go to the Greek version of the Old Testament in this verse, you'll see the Greek word eklektos. Now, I don't know if you can think back to our Calvinism series a long time ago, back in Fayetteville. They went through this word eklektos. And the word eklektos is the word translated as chosen in the New Testament. And the Calvinists will have you believe that the Greek word eklektos, which is translated as chosen usually in the New Testament, means God picked someone, you're saved, didn't pick you, you're not saved. That's what they'll tell you it means. But the Septuagint, when, they, when the Greek word eklektos is there, it means choice, precious. That's what it means. Chosen in that sense. Choice to God. Uh, something special. And we see here that Matthew affirms that rendering of eklektos by giving us a, a Greek word here that's not eklektos here in the New Testament here, when he's bringing it into the New Testament. It's not eklektos behind my beloved. It's a different word, but it shows that Matthew understood that the eklektos he saw, because he's probably reading some, from the Septuagint here, when he saw eklektos, he knew it meant beloved, choice. He knew it didn't mean chosen in the sense that I picked you, I didn't pick you, I picked you, I didn't pick you. He knew this. So this, this right here, what Matthew is doing with this word, reaffirms to me that Calvinism has it all wrong when it comes to this Greek word eklektos. That it means choice, precious, beloved. That's what it means. And the fact that Matthew would use this word, and basically he's saying it's synonymous with the other word that you see in the Old Testament, Shows me, once again, it gets more proof for me, more affirming to me, that it, the Calvinistic uses of the Greek word eklektos is wrong. Dead wrong. <clears throat> so, I'll put my spirit upon him and he will declare justice to the Gentiles. And the word justice here can mean judgment, declaring judgment to them. 
It can also mean to administer fairness. Because think about the Gentiles, their situation. We have these Jewish people who, for the most part, push them away and say, we want nothing to do with you. Unless you're going to become a Jew, we want nothing to do with you. You're, you're like dogs to us, is basically the idea that Jews had towards Gentiles. You're unclean. And we even see once the New Testament comes into play, the, the Pentecost comes, Peter, they're all having problems still going to the Gentiles. They're having a problem shaking this off themselves. <clears throat> but Jesus is going to come and declare, just administer fairness to the Gentiles. Now, Jesus didn't come for the Gentiles, did he? Who did he come for? The lost sheep of the house of Israel. That's who he came for. He didn't, he didn't really go to the Gentile cities. He wasn't going to them. And when, before he ascended to heaven, after 40 days, when he rose again, he stayed with the disciples for 40 days, and he ascended to heaven, what did he say? No, he said, go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. So he's telling them to go. He, he didn't go to Gentiles, but he told them to go to Gentiles. And we saw in Matthew 10, when he sent disciples out the first time, he didn't send them to the Gentiles, did he? He said, did not go to them. It's not the right time. But Christ's coming administers fairness in their case. And we see, if we went back to Mark 3, once again, to see the details here, there were a group of people from Tyre and Sidon who came to hear him. Gentiles were coming all the way from Tyre and Sidon. There was Phoenicia at that point in time, which is just north of, of uh, Judah and Israel. They were coming to see Jesus. And he was administering fairness to them. By telling them the truth. And it says, He will not quarrel, nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. Now this verse right here has been used by many professing Christians on YouTube videos of mine trying to declare that we shouldn't be open-air preaching because we're not following in the footsteps of Jesus because he didn't quarrel or cry out. He, no one heard his voice in the streets. But what is it referring to here? This is the whole reason why I'm, I'm, I'm bringing out this stuff beforehand as to what he warned them not to make known. He didn't cry out and shoot, I'm the Son of God, the Messiah is here. He didn't do that. And when the Pharisees wanted to plot against him and tried to destroy him, did he quarrel with them? Did he argue with them? No, he withdrew from there. And so this Isaiah prophecy is being fulfilled right here in this situation because he's not saying, I am the Son of God. He's not staying there quarreling with the Pharisees. He's not crying out in that sense. But you'll never have me believe with the whole council of Scripture Jesus didn't open air preach. I can just give you one scenario. 5,000 men plus women and children were fed by Jesus. And if we just say there's one woman per man and one child per man, we have 15,000 people now Jesus is speaking to. Tell me he's whispering to them. Tell me he's not crying out to them. Uh, and and the, in the Sermon on the Mount, great multitudes were there, it says. He wasn't whispering to them. He wanted everyone to hear what he was saying. So he was crying out to them. So the crying out he didn't do, <clears throat> and the hearing his voice in the streets that people didn't hear had to do in regard to his being the Son of God. Okay? So in quarreling, he didn't engage in strife with the Pharisees. He didn't engage in strife with them. He let them believe what they wanted to believe. And he even told the disciples sometimes, they're blind leaders of the blind. Leave them alone. And they said, well, you're, you're offending them, Jesus. 
Oh, they're blind, leave them blind, leave them alone. He wasn't concerned about that. If they had ears to hear, they would hear. If their condition of their heart was proper and humble and childlike, they would have heard. He wouldn't have to engage in strife and quarreling with them. Matthew, stop that. Verse 20 says, a bruised reed he will not break. A bruised reed, you could brush up against it and it would break. And this is referring to Jesus' gentleness. He's gentle. He's meek. If he sees, and I think it's referring to people who are, who are broken. Broken in spirit. Go back to the Beatitudes. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. He's not here to break those who are poor in spirit. And he often went to those who are poor in spirit, not those who thought they were good enough. He's not going to break them. He's not here to break those who are already kind of bruised and withered. He's here to heal them and lift them up. A smoking flax he will not quench. A smoking flax is, uh, they had lamps in those days, and a flax was something that came up. It was kind of like the fuse, I guess you could say, like, the, like in a candle, the wick in a candle. And uh, if a flax is smoking, it means it's running out of oil. So those who are, who are humble, who are broken, who are poor in spirit, who are running out of oil, who are bruised, he's not, not there to break them. He's not there to quench them. He's there to give them more oil. He's there to tape them up and let them heal. That's what he wants to do for those people. And those are the people who, who really are more open to Jesus than others, who are poor in spirit, who are broken and contrite. You know, Psalm 51, 17, Psalm 34, 18. Those are some good verses to memorize for, for your own walk and to, to, to talk to other people about this. Psalm 51, 17 and Psalm 34, 18. And um, he, he's not going to break the re- bruisery. He's not going to quench the smoking flax. And this he will do. This is the way he will be until he sends forth justice to victory. In his name, Gentiles will trust. Now, the word Gentile here is a Greek word, ethnos. What English word do you think we get from that? Ethnicity. Ethnicity, Ethnicity that's right. And ethnos basically means, there's two different definitions I'll give you for ethnos. It means people united by kinship, culture, and common tradition. People united by kinship, culture, and common tradition. That's, that's generally the, the definition we give to the English word ethnicity, for the most part. Uh, but it also can mean people groups foreign to a specific group of people. So that, that's the definition being used here, I believe. People groups foreign to a specific group of people. So it's referring to people groups who are foreign to the Jews. Gentiles. In the Bible, you see two groups of people. You see Jews, you see Gentiles. The Jewish people are those who are chosen by God. They have the law of God. And the Gentiles are everyone else who are a people group, the whole rest of the world, foreign to another specific group of people, the Jews. Okay? That's what we see happening here. And then we have this uh, situation with this demon-possessed man who is blind and mute. And it tells you the power of demons. They can tie up the tongue of an individual. Uh, they can make them blind so they can't see. So it's very hard for, for Jesus to communicate with this person. So he drives the demons out. And then he's able to communicate with him. 
And the question becomes then, it says, then one was brought to him. Now, going back to verse uh, 14, it says, Then the Pharisees went out and plotted against him how they might destroy him. Who? I don't, we don't really know for sure, but who do you think might have brought this man to Jesus? Possible? Possible. It's like we looked in, in, in Matthew 12 uh, and verse 10. And behold, there was a man who had a withered hand. They asked him, saying, I wonder who might have brought him to Jesus. So they're, they're trying to catch Jesus. They're trying to have something against him. They're trying to plot against him that they might destroy him. And so that, that, that's po- I don't know for sure, but it's possible they might have brought uh, this man to him. And if they did, man, it sure did backfire him, didn't it? It sure did. And uh, the, they had the multitude saying, could this be the son of David? Could this be the Messiah? The one we're waiting for? The king of kings and lord of lords? And the Pharisees, oh no, you know, they... We can't have them believe in that. We're going to lose a lot of our followers now. And uh, they accuse him of casting out demons by the ruler of demons, Beelzebub. Now, Beelzebub, let me give you a little history of Beelzebub. Here's a reference you can read later on for yourself. 2 Kings chapter 1, verses 2 through 16. Very interesting situation there. Uh as I was reading it again last night, it kind of gave me a little chuckle, I guess, for, to some degree. Uh, Elijah is the prophet in Israel. And um, let's see, I think the, the king was, I think it was Ahaz, if I remember right. I guess I should remember, so I read it again last night. Uh, but uh, it's Ahaziah. Okay, yeah. And uh, he was having a problem. He, he got hurt. And he went to a choir of the Philistine deity... Baal-zebub. So the, the origin of Beelzebub is a Philistine deity, but the word literally means Lord of Flies, or Lord of Dung. Okay? So they're accusing Jesus of casting out demons according, uh, by the power of the Lord of Dung, the Lord of Flies. You know, because what do you see fly around dung? You see flies. And um, so that's the origin. And, but in that situation, the thing I thought was, I guess, somewhat humorous is that the king wanted to... He wanted to rebuke uh, Elijah for saying to him that he's going to die because he, he inquired of Beelzebub instead of inquiring of the Lord. He inquired of Beelzebub. So Elijah told him, he said, you're going to die. He didn't like that. So he sent out 50 of his soldiers and his general and, 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 and uh, he said, uh, if I am a prophet, may fire come down from heaven. <laughs> They're done. And actually, Rufiti comes out, same thing. <laughs> the third group, now the guy, the general now, he's starting to learn his lesson. This third general, he, he's like pleading. He's on his knees and saying, you know, please have mercy on me. Don't, don't destroy me. Don't kill me. And, he doesn't, and they're not destroyed. And uh, just goes to show you, don't mess with the prophet of God. But, uh, so that's kind of a little bit of the history of Beelzebub. And, um, but Jesus gives them three points to refute their thinking here. This is good open-air preaching here. Three thoughts to refute their thinking. One, why would Satan do that? Satan, if, if Satan has power over this man, and he's demon-possessed, and Satan has him bound up, why would Satan ever release such a man? Why would he do that? That wouldn't make any sense. It's, it's a kingdom divided against itself, and it won't stand. And if, you know, if, if Satan casts out Satan, he's dividing against himself, how then will his kingdom stand? So the first point is, you know, Satan wouldn't do that. Satan's not dumb. 
in that sense anyway. Um, he knows better. He's not going to release a captive who he has control over. The second point he makes in verse 27 is, well, if I cast out demons by the power of Beelzebub, who do your sons cast out demons by? In other words, if you say your sons, and this doesn't have to literally mean their actual biological sons, it could mean their disciples, people who they're training, their people who are in the, the same group as them. If, if you assume they're casting out demons by the power of God, why aren't you doing that with me? And what he's exposing here is their presupposition against him. That they came to the table and his miracles, his casting of demons, with his, this suppressing the truth and the righteousness issue going on here. They just didn't like Jesus. They weren't being objective about it at all. They just didn't like Jesus. And that's the whole reason they're coming to this conclusion. And therefore, they will be your judges. And, you know, this question as to whether they, they really were Jewish exorcists, whether they really were driving out demons or not, going back to Matthew 7, remember Jesus said, many will say to me, do we not cast out demons in your name? The question is, did it really happen? I don't really know. They're saying it happened. Did it really happen? I don't know. But if demons can be cast out, and they were being cast out by some, then they're going to have to answer them. If, if, if he, they're casting them out by the, by the power of God, so am I. If they're not casting out, but saying they are, and I say I'm casting out, and you know I am, what power besides the power of God could do such a thing? So that's the second point he makes with them. And if he does cast demons by the Spirit of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. The kingdom of God is really here because the kingdom of God is being set up right now by stealing one of the captives from Satan and bringing him into the kingdom of God. It's happening right before your eyes, he's saying. If I really am casting out demons by the Spirit of God. And the third point he gives is this. How can one enter a strong man's house and plunder his good unless he first bind the strong man? The strong man referred to as who? The devil. And this strong man had control over these people he was casting out demons out of. And he says, if I'm, if I'm casting these demons out of him, I'm binding the strong man. I'm on the same team as him. I'm binding him. And therefore, I'm stealing his possessions. And in all reality, every sinner, whether they admit it or not, whether they believe it or not, whether they know it or not, they're in the possession of the devil while they're on earth. They're submitting to his lordship instead of to God's lordship, to Jesus Christ's lordship. And Jesus can probably sense that the Pharisees are they're trying to turn the crowd against him by saying he cast the demons by the power of Beelzebub. And what, what kind of tactic are they using there? Well, they're, you know, at Hamid's app, they're using fear tactics. They're saying, you know, this Jesus is casting demons and people are like, oh, they're all amazed and Saying, no, that's the power of the devil. Oh, no, the power of the devil? I'm going to run away. Using some kind of fear tactics, but not based upon truth. Not based upon knowledge. Based upon their false presuppositions. And so Jesus, he, he probably can sense that they're trying to turn the crowd against him. So in verse 30, he gives a real call to make a decision here. He says, he who is not with me is against me. And he who does not gather with me scatters abroad. Are you with me or with the Pharisees? Are you with me or with the demons? Are you with me or with Beelzebub? 
It's a Satan. It's Satan and the Pharisees, or it's me. Make your decision. Because he who is not with me is against me. And he who does not gather with me scatters abroad. The Pharisees are trying to scatter these people abroad. I put in some kind of false fear in their heart that Jesus is working by the power of the devil. It happens open air preaching all the time. You preach the truth, the professing Christians come along, they try to scatter people abroad. Don't, don't listen to him. Don't listen to him. Listen. If you want to hear the true grace of God, come over here and listen to me. A couple people follow and they come back eventually, hopefully. But they're trying to scatter people away, and sometimes it works to some degree. They may scatter like a third of the crowd or half the crowd, and they may never come back. And they'll have to give an account of that. For scattering people abroad who were here in the gospel truth, who we were trying to gather in to the fold of Jesus, and be part of his sheep. And now in these last two verses here, we, we see some two verses that probably have been written about as much as anything else when it comes to this unpardonable sin issue. Okay? Now I want us to reason this out. I'm going to go to Mark here in a second. We're going to read what it says in Mark too. But let's just read this again. Therefore Jesus says to them, Every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven men. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him, either in this age or the age to come. And then in Mark 3.30, Mark in chapter 3. <clears throat> and well, I guess we'll just start in verse 28, but 30 is the most important part, I think, here in regards to our situation here. Interpreting this properly. Mark three twenty eight through 30. Surely I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the sons of men, whatever blasphemies they may utter. But he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is subject to eternal condemnation. They said he has an, because they said he has an unclean spirit. Okay, now, a while back, probably a couple of years ago, there was a sensation going on on the Internet and on YouTube where people would make this video and say, I blaspheme the Holy Spirit. And they, think, they thought that's the, that was the unpardonable sin because they said that, those, those words. Um, is that what you kind of get a feel for here? Is that, is that what pe were people even saying that? No, that's not what I'm saying either. And I think verse 30 of Mark 3 is, is the most important issue here that really clarifies why he's saying this. Let me read it one more time. Um, because they said he has an unclean spirit. Who's the he there? So what they're doing, they're attributing the power within Jesus to what? To an unclean spirit. They're saying the Holy Spirit is an unclean spirit. They're saying the Holy Spirit is the spirit of the devil. Now you have to go real far to do that. To see, and, and there's question as to whether this can be done today. Because verse 30 says, because he has an unclean spirit. Is Jesus in the flesh today? No, he's not in the flesh today. So some people would reason that this can't be done today. This unpardonable sin cannot be done today because Jesus is no longer living on earth and you can't say about him he has an unclean spirit. I'm not so sure I would agree with that. It's, it's reasonable from what we see in the scriptures. But I think possibly it can be done today. Anytime you attribute the work of the Holy Spirit to the work of the devil, 
you're treading on dangerous ground. That's what these people were doing. That's what the Pharisees were doing. They were calling the work of the Spirit. Yes, in this situation, specifically, it was through Jesus to the work of the devil. So people need to be real careful uh, when they see these issues. And um, a lot of times people have applied this to maybe the doctrine of reprobation. I don't believe the doctrine of reprobation needs these three verses here in order to be supported in Scripture. You can go to Hebrews 6, 4 through 6, which says it's impossible for them to repent. They've sinned away. They've gone so far that they can't come back. But that has nothing to do with what is being said here. Okay? Nothing to do with what's being said here. The people in Hebrews 6, 4 through 6 don't have to say that this work of the Holy Spirit is the work of the devil. Okay, so when you've gone that far, you've gone too far. And it will not be forgiven of you. So people need to be careful about this issue. But I don't think it means, I don't think this, this is talking about the doctrine of reprobation here. Um, you know, a lot of times people would say, well, this is, uh, you know, people reject the work of the Spirit in their life over and over again. That that's what it's talking about here. No, I don't think that's what it's talking about here. I think verse 30 of Mark 3 clarifies that. And the whole context is, is them attributing the work of the Holy Spirit to the work of the devil. So that's what we see as the unpardonable sin here. So there is some questions of whether it could be done today, but I think to be on the safe side, I, I would say that it could be done today because we're talking about the Spirit here. The Spirit's still around today. He's still around today, working in miraculous ways sometimes. And so we need to be careful uh, what we say. Um, I mean, I know there's a lot of fake things going on in the name of the Holy Spirit these days in Pentecostal and charismatic churches. But we need to be careful and keep a tight ring in our tongue and make sure we're not saying things that, aren't, that, aren't, that we don't know are true. Now, if we can test it against the Word of God and know that it's not true according to the Word of God, of course we should declare it that. But we need to be careful. Yeah? Wouldn't it also be kind of an issue? Wouldn't it also be uh, the fact that the Pharisees had it with knowledge, like they knew what they were doing, they knew it wasn't the spirit of the devil, they were still claiming it was? Yeah, I mean, obviously they have knowledge of it, and uh, but I, I don't even think that's a prerequisite. Yeah, I don't think that's a prerequisite here. Because they're... I mean, when you see a miraculous thing like that happen, this man is blind and mute. And he's casting out a demon. And Jesus reasons with him. I mean, these are things I know they would be thinking about. You know, my son's to cast these things out. He's bringing these things before them because they, they're not thinking properly here. And um, it's, it's very clear that they are suppressing some kind of truth. Whether, it's no, whether they know it's the work of the Holy Spirit or not, they're suppressing some kind of truth there. But just by the three points that Jesus gave. They should know better. But everyone who sees a blind and mute man who's filled with demons begin to speak and see again, they know something miraculous happened there. And they want to attribute that to the devil. They're, in, they're on dangerous ground. And there may be no chance for them because of what they say and what they do. And we'll see next week what Jesus says about words in verse uh, 37. And the last thing I'll point out here is that that when Jesus, uh, in this situation, the same thing happened in Matthew uh, 9, 30 34. Uh, a similar thing happens there where they say that uh, uh, he cast demons by the ruler of demons in verse 34 of Matthew 9. But he didn't defend himself there. You know, and, uh, and really Jesus isn't defending himself here. 
He's defending the Holy Spirit. But the, the point I'm trying to make to you here is that there's time to speak up and time to be quiet. Oftentimes when we're in open air, maybe a foolish person will come by and I'll just ignore them. And I'll try to put some kind of false guilt over me and say, well, Jesus would never ignore anybody. He, he will answer everybody's questions. not always true. In fact, the wise man knows how to hold his tongue and when to hold his tongue. When to say nothing and when to speak up. Before, lest he puts his foot in his mouth and makes himself look like a fool. So a wise man knows how to do that. And, um, you know, it does say that it will not be forgiven them in this age or in the age to come. So you're going to have, if, you, if someone does this, they're going to have repercussions in this age, in this life and in the life to come. And maybe one of the repercussions, because these are the leaders of Israel who are doing these things, was the destruction of Israel in AD 70. Maybe that was part of the repercussions of being going so far as to commit as committing unpardonable sin as the leaders of a nation. And uh, that might have been part of the part of the problem. Okay, so I think that's uh, I think that's all I have from this passage. All right. So, does anyone have uh, questions, objections, uh, things they want to add? Yes, brother. I have a, a kind of a question slash comment because you see so many. Uh, I haven't seen anything in person. I would say that I know of, but you see things like either on YouTube or online or on TV, and even things by uh, just by word of mouth, people talk about miracles that's not in my place. How do you know? I guess where to draw the line between being hard-hearted to accept any kind of miracle that you disclose something that goes out there right. and you're not, you know, just getting a heart of unbelief or anything like that? Right. Or how do you know when you're actually even unbelief somebody you know that's also something that's something that also may happen by the Spirit? Right. Uh, it's kind of like you, you know how to tell where that line is that you don't become just hardened and say, oh, there's no miracles going on. That's a good question. There are, there is a lot of false miracles going on these days. Uh, the total blasphemy network, TBN, is a real big who think healing must be done, otherwise you're not doing it, because according to Mark 16, you're not, you're not really, signs aren't following you, so you're not really doing all of the Great Commission. And they claim to have lots of healings. and um, it's, a, it's definitely a fine line. You have to test the spirits, and, uh, you know, and generally, I, I want some kind of physical proof. I don't really think that's too much to ask for. I mean, anyone can claim that someone got healed. But if you can show me some proof from a doctor that he was like this and that he wasn't like that, or show me some video footage where it, it changed in the spot, or, you know, I don't want to have a heart of unbelief, but in this day and age, where so much falseness going on, um, you know, I'm not going to just trust everyone who says that. So I want to I give them the benefit of the doubt. If, if I can tell they're true brothers and sisters in Christ, so not off the deep end with charismania, etc. Uh, I want to give them the benefit of the doubt, but at the same time, you know, I, I want to... I, I want to see some kind of proof that this was a genuine thing here. You're not just saying this. You know, that this is actually being done. Um, Jesus showed proof. You know, just like that. He showed, that. He showed the people the miracles he did. So if it's actually happening, then we shouldn't have a problem asking when you see, see the person walk. And there was a post this morning on Facebook by I believe that, but 
all the pictures I'm seeing of the healing was the guy sitting in the wheelchair. I never saw any pictures of him up out of the wheelchair. Right. I hope and pray that's the case. I hope they're not lying. I don't think they're lying about it, but why not take some pictures after the guy's walking? Or video footage. Or video footage even better to, to see this guy, uh, this homeless guy who was saying his testimony about himself is I'm paralyzed and I need a healing. And they laid hands on him and they say he's healed. Great. Or video testimony. After the guy afterwards. Right. Right. And not just to make this proclamation without uh, showing. This is always the problem, you know, that uh, I believe it still happens today. Yeah. But because people uh, are not willing to provide the evidence, then there's doubt. Yeah. The world says, of course, this guy's not healing uh, anybody, you know. And uh, the signs could follow today. Yeah, they don't have to follow. And, th and that's where we must, must draw a distinction here is that. Just like we don't have to drink poison to prove that we're of God, we don't have to take up a poisonous stick and let it bite us to prove we're from God. We don't have to heal people to prove we're from God. Now, God can heal. We can drink poison and be okay if it's done on an accident, not on purpose. We can take up a snake on an accident or pick up a stick like Paul did and be bit and be okay. Uh, we're not going out and doing these. I mean, I, I want to heal people. And if the opportunity presents, I'm going to do it. But I'm not going out to, to heal. I'm going out to preach the gospel. And... Um, I think one thing, one line I would draw, Brother Sean, is that when people think that God, it's God's will to heal everyone of every situation, um, I have to say I disagree with them. And that's where most of these groups are coming from who are having these false healings. They heal someone and they're expecting every time for God to heal. I expect that God can heal. He's able to heal. But whether he will or not, I don't know unless God reveals that to me. Whether he heals the person or God speaks to me and says, I want to heal this person, go pray for him right now. That's the only way I, would, I could know possibly that it's definitely going to happen. And, uh, you know, you see, going back to this proving thing, what did Jesus tell the people who he healed to do most times? Go back and show yourself to the priest. The lepers. Right. 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 Yeah. Yeah, it was a command. And it, it seemed as if and this I, I know someone who had the pure power of healing at one point in time, my, my father in law. He described it to me. And he's not, he said it wasn't like as if I went around and prayed for everybody to be healed. He said I had the this is having the gift of healing. He God would tell him who to pray for, he would pray for them and they would get healed. But when people started coming to his door asking him to heal them, he's like, I I can't do that. I, I'm not going to presume on the on, on God for this, and so we're dealing with two different things here. You know, James James five sixteen, praying for someone and anointing with oil is different than having the power to heal, healing people on the spot. It's a little bit different. It's a spiritual gift given by God, and that's the way my father would described it. And then after a while, people started coming to him and attributing so much to him, he asked for God to take it away. He didn't want it anymore, and and God took it away, and. Um, but it's it's a that's a good question. Something we all need to think about when it comes to this fine line between unbelief in the miracles and and wanting to accept people say, but you have to have some kind of proof, evidence that it's actually going on. So uh, I could not remember where I I've heard this taught, so I'm just going to kind of put it out there and see okay. what you think about it. But the there was a prophecy about the Messiah would uh, heal somebody who's both blind and mute. Mm. Um, 
because uh, traditionally the Jews would cast out demons by speaking to them, and uh, this this demon would not speak. So he he proved his net and his supernatural messiahship by this miracle in front of the Pharisees. So I don't, I cannot remember uh, where it is, or just wondering if you've heard anything about that or. Uh, there might be a prophecy in Isaiah that talks about this. Um, I I don't I remember the something about blind seeing in Isaiah, but the mute talking. I don't remember ever saying that Isaiah. It may it may be one of these things. And when I've gone to a Messianic Jewish fellowship, I went to one a few weeks in a row up in Michigan. Where I lived there for a while. And he talked about these issues. How Jesus, when he came as a Messiah, he fulfilled even things that weren't found in the Bible that they thought the Messiah would be like. And that may be one of those things. And the one example I remember him giving me um, was that when Nathaniel was under the fig tree, um, and then he, he came, Philip brought Nathaniel to Jesus, and Jesus said, I saw you under the fig tree. And uh, he, he, it's like he knew all of a sudden he was the Messiah. And so this, this, this Messianic Jewish teacher, pastor, reasoned that, that he was thinking uh, about some of the teachings of the rabbis that when Jesus came, everything would be so plentiful, figs would just fall off the trees, they'd be so big. And then maybe Nathaniel was there and some figs fell into his hands while he was praying and worshiping God. And that's why he said that. Because that, that was part of Jewish tradition. So Jesus, and he gave me, I can't remember off the top of my head, but he gave me other examples too where Jesus was fulfilling. I think the water turning to wine was fulfilling that too because they thought the wine would be, the, the, the vineyards would be so overflowing, there'd be wine everywhere. Just like water is everywhere, there'd be wine would be everywhere. And so Jesus was even fulfilling things the Jews thought he would come as to even more further show them, look, I'm here. The Messiah has come. And the, so it might be one of those things, type of things. Right. That, well, these teachings are not part of the canon. They're, they're, there's something that Jesus is just being merciful towards the Jewish people. And trying to show them even more. Listen, listen I'm right here. I'm right here. You know, he didn't have to do those things because it's not part of prophecy or scripture. But he did do them anyway. And in order to more clearly show the Jews to have, they have no excuse before him. Anyone else? I don't know, but I, I believe it, I don't know for sure, but I believe it means to speak badly about to malign in character. Yeah. Like when you, you take God's name in vain, you're maligning his character. Whether it's just by using his name as a cuss word or by saying you're a Christian and not living a Christian life. Those would both be taking the Lord's name in vain. But we call that blasphemy. I hope everyone understands this because this is something that we all need to have in our mind when it comes to this issue about this not crying out or hearing any his voice in the streets. I mean, it's just nonsense. People would even say that. And I knew when I started studying this passage last week 
that I knew I'd have to hit on that hard because I've heard people say that many times. They actually think it's a good objection, but their interpretation of that verse contradicts the whole of Scripture. You know, we had a campus minister at MPSU, if I remember right, use that passage to, to, he was, I think it was the second time he was there, and he was passing out these cards about why what we were doing was wrong. And I think he used that passage there as part of his evidence. Right. Why do you want to cry out? You want to be like Jesus. We can't even follow what is talking about here. We can't even follow Jesus in that command because he's, he's saying, "I did not cry out that I'm the Son of God." But we're supposed to cry out that He's the Son of God. This is one of those examples where we're not following Jesus in. It was for Him only. You know. Amen. No picky. No picky. Picky. Amen. Anyone else? Anything? No? Go once, go twice. So.